as you take your Bibles and turn, take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 5, verse 27 through 39, I want to just uh, uh, <clears throat> wish all of you moms out there a warm and happy Mother's Day. And uh, I think we all have reason to give thanks to God for this day, especially uh, for our, the mothers in our lives or those who have uh, been like moms to us even as well. God has uh, created uh, not only um, men and women, but he's created fathers and mothers uh, to fulfill their roles within the home and the family to be a blessing to us. And we honor, their, uh, we honor our fathers and mothers. We particularly honor our moms when we, when we, <clears throat> when we follow uh, the, the principles, the that uh, that she or the, the truths that she has taught us over our lifetimes, and I'm sure if we go around the room, we can uh, share but like one thing that your mom has taught you, and one way you honor your mom is to to live by that's that truth, to live by that. So you know, if it's to watch behind your ears, then do that to the honor of your mom, uh, or whatever it may be. But uh, we, in a similar way, uh, do the th- same thing when we honor God. We honor Him by particularly honor Jesus Christ by. Uh, observing the, the truths, the lessons that Jesus teaches us, or has taught us, and recorded for us in his word. And uh, one of those truths that Jesus taught us is the message of salvation that is by uh, grace, uh, uh, by grace through the, the forgiveness of sins through faith, in him, through faith in him. And this was the heart of Jesus' message. This was the heart of Jesus' mission as we've been studying kind of the early years of Jesus' Galilean ministry. And we, as disciples of Christ, honor him when this truth, this message, becomes the, the heart of, of our mission, of, of, the, of the lives that we live. And when we do so, we fulfill his great commission, and, and uh, we, we live our lives to be the kind of people uh, that reflect that Jesus as our God and our Lord and our Savior. Uh, something funny, of course, happens along the way often is that we forget and sometimes take for granted the lessons uh, that Jesus teaches us, even as we oftentimes take for granted the lessons that even our moms teach us as well. But today's passage is a passage that we all desperately need. It's a very powerful passage. Whenever you just read it, and I trust you will feel conviction from this passage, uh, but it's a passage that reminds us of Jesus' mission as well as our mission. Jesus did not come to call us to live comfortable lives as we live on earth and we have fellowship with our fellow brothers and sisters and just blend into the world but jesus calls us to live counter-cultural lives lives that inevitably because it's counter-culturally is going to be at times uncomfortable it is at times goes against the grain of the world when we follow jesus we no longer live just like the rest of the world when we follow Jesus, we begin to live for a, a higher calling, a great commission, a heavenly kingdom. And he calls us simply to be salt of the earth and a light of the world. And, and that means that there is going to be a distinction between the lives that we live and the words that we speak compared to the rest of the world. Today's passage, I pray, will purify and refine our priorities, mine included. And the values that we have, the, the pursuits and the goals that we have in this life. Luke has been painting a picture for us of the mission of the Messiah. And he, in the previous passage, he's just, Jesus healed a paralytic. And in doing so, he shows that he's both willing and able to forgive sins. Not just the sins of religious, church-going, I mean temple-going, nice people. But the sins of those who are hopeless 
helpless, depraved sinners dead in their sins. In today's text, we see how Jesus even forgives and redeems a one so despicable as a traitorous tax collector or tax gatherer. And it's upon this occasion in this text that we see two charges are then raised against Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus then uses these questions to reveal the priorities of his mission on earth. So as an outline for us, we're going to look at two controversies today. Uh, Luke kind of is starting to see this pattern in Luke's gospel. He sort of always puts two events right next to each other to create a a contrast or a comparison to to bring out a point. And he does so here as well. Two controversies in Jesus' ministry that teach us what is important in following Jesus. But particularly for those of us who are believers, what is important in following Jesus' mission to forgive sinners. All right, so let's uh, take a look at the first point that we're going to look at today is going to be found in verse 27 to 32. And then we look at the question of feasting, the question of feasting. Here we read in verse 27 through 28. Let's take uh, 27, 28. Let's look at this. This is where we see uh, the first point. After that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. We'll stop right there. We see here that what takes place here in these two verses that Jesus saves a tax collector or a sinner we might, uh, for practical purposes. Uh, after healing the paralytic, Jesus now continues to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And among those who heard his teaching was this one young man named Levi. And he was called to salvation. And the significant thing about Levi, that, was, that he was saved, others were getting saved. But this particular one was a, was a sinner. He was a tax collector. Tax collectors, of course, were hated by society because they were extortionists. They became wealthy by collecting oftentimes twice or three times what was needed, uh, what was actually required by Rome. And they would turn in what was required to Rome and then pocket for themselves uh, the extra uh, for, them, uh, for their own keeping. The only limit to what they could collect was simply their own greed. They were oftentimes not only considered to be um, uh, extortionists, but they were considered to be traitors by the Jewish people. Because these Jews had basically were working for the Roman government. They were helping the enemy. What's worse, these tax collectors would have had regular interactions with Gentiles uh, through their regular collection of taxes. And so they were considered unclean. In the eyes of the Jews, tax collectors were often classed with robbers, evildoers, adulterers, prostitutes, and pagan Gentiles. They were hated, rejected, and ostracized by their own people. They were not trusted to even be witnesses in a court of law. They were forbidden to enter the synagogues for worship. Tax collectors were loathed. And although wealthy, yet all the money they would ever need more than he could ever need. Levi felt its emptiness and vanity. He felt the need for forgiveness. When he heard Jesus preach and teach, he was drawn to this man and his teaching. And one day as Levi fulfilled his duties, his job as a tax collector in the tax booth, Jesus passes by. But Jesus doesn't just continue on by, but Jesus comes right up to him and says to him, follow me. 
No one would associate with tax collectors, except unless you were a tax collector. No one would even talk to tax collectors. Jesus not only talks to Levi, but he calls him to be his disciple. He calls him to be a follower of Christ. This Levi the tax collector would become Levi the disciple. And Levi responded much the same way as Peter, James, and John did earlier in Luke. He left everything behind, got up, and began to follow Jesus. The verbs here, left behind and got up, basically have this convey this idea that it was a decisive act of Levi. It was a singular act to leave everything behind, never to return. The verb for follow is this idea, it's, it's imperfect tense, so this conveys a, a continuous pattern of life. He would follow Jesus for the rest of his days. Levi would also be known as Matthew. His, he had another name, a second name, Matthew, meaning the gift of the Lord. And this same Matthew would eventually, of course, write the very first gospel that is called by his name. More important than gaining riches was following Jesus to Levi. And in Jesus, Matthew found the forgiveness and redemption that he was longing for. A satisfaction greater than all the wealth and riches that this world could provide. So Jesus saves a tax collector and sinner. And then we see the a problem rise in verse 29 and 30. He had saved other sinners, and, um, but here is the first tax collector that he had at least recorded in Scripture that he brought to salvation. We see in verse 29 and 30 that now Jesus dines with tax collectors and sinners. Verse 29 and 30. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining or at the table with them. The Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Just like many new believers, even if you're a new believer here, uh, you are one of the most effective evangelists in all the world. You're fresh, and, and you're excited about Jesus, and you, and you want to go out and introduce everybody you can know, like that, <coughs> everybody you know to, to Jesus. It's like how many of us feel when you're introduced something new and something exciting, like a, you see a new movie, or you see, hear a new song, or you read a, a new book, and you say, oh, this is great, i got to tell everybody about it, or you try a new restaurant. Well, when you come to know Jesus, there's that excitement, and that exists, exudes, you want everybody else to know Jesus. And to do so, Matthew held this big reception it says it was a feast it was a banquet uh, <clears throat> and it was in his house so if this banquet since it was a large crowd we later see he had a large house this was no small event this was like the Met Gala you know this was a, a great crowd of tax collectors and others Luke says and they were all reclining at the table with Jesus and it's one thing to save sinners but here, by the cultural standards of those days, it was a whole other thing to dine with sinners, to share the table with sinners, and much less with tax collectors. This was a greater scan, greater, this was a great scandal, and it raised the eyebrows of all the Pharisees as well as their scribes. And it's kind of funny because the scribes and Pharisees weren't invited to this party, but they all knew about it. What were they doing? They were like spying on the corner or something like that, you know. But they have like some, they were like peeking in. Oh, oh, I see Jesus there. But they didn't dare challenge Jesus directly 
They challenged his disciples. So they, sent this, they said to his disciples, why do you eat with and drink with tax collectors and sinners? The word sinners, by the way, is kind of added here as a further description of these tax collectors. The word was commonly used by the Pharisees to refer to those who basically, those Jewish people who did not live according to the law. They were like irreligious people. They were the secular people. They, were, they lived in basically sin because they didn't live according to God's ways. To eat and drink with someone here implies a common bond. And here Jesus is eating and drinking with, with <clears throat> tax collectors and sinners. So the Pharisees were essentially accusing Jesus of socializing with sinners and by association with them was affirming their immoral practices. Much like today, you would think that we, we tend to associate because you're a friend with someone that somehow, because you're friends with them, therefore you somehow affirm their sinful ways. In their minds, in, these, in the minds of these Pharisees and scribes, no truly righteous person would eat and drink with sinners. But Jesus would do this throughout his ministry. He would have no qualms dining with sinners. In fact, it would be continual charge against him. Luke 7, 34, 15, 2, and 19, verse 7 are all different places where he is charged as, as, or, and, uh, and criticized for being a friend of sinners. For what reason does Jesus do this? Why does he dine with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus, hearing of the accusation of the scribes, answers in verses 31 and 32. Because Jesus came to call tax collectors and sinners. Verse 31, 32, we read this. And Jesus answered and said to them, and so it's like almost as if he heard them. You know, they made their outside the window talking with the, 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 his disciples. And he speaks to the scribes and Pharisees directly. He says, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. You can just imagine him kind of just using his fingers, his hands, and just addressing and pointing to all those dining at the table. It's not those who are well in Jesus, it's those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. <clears throat> His answer reveals that there's an appropriate time and place to eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. And he does, he does so not to approve what they do, but he eats with them in order to offer them and minister to them the gospel of the kingdom of God. Jesus quotes here a, a well-known proverb in those days that basically healthy people don't need a physician, but those who are sick do. You find wherever there's a doctor, you're going to find that they spend most of their time with sick people, right? It's like a, you expect to find someone who's a shepherd to be hanging around with a lot of sheep, a mechanic to be around cars. You would just expect this, and it's Jesus is the great physician. He is the physician of souls. And he's come, and he, he has not come to minister to those who are well, but he's come to minister to those who are sick, those who are spiritually sick. He came to heal them. He came to heal the spiritual lepers and the spiritual paralytics of our world. And his second statement clarifies this purpose. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Here he speaks more literally. Jesus is not talking, by the way, about those who are actually righteous. 
We know in the scriptures that, for instance, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 3.10 that there's none who are righteous, not even one. The Pharisees, however, thought that they were righteous, didn't they? They thought they were righteous. Why? Because they were the Bible-believing folks of those days. They were the ones who observed the law. They not only observed the law, but they made a lot of extra laws to, so that they would not violate any of the laws. They had convictions and, and conscience, uh, convictions of conscience going beyond even what the law said. These became their traditions. And they, because they observed their traditions, became self-righteous, thinking that their observation of their traditions or the fact that they kept them more better than others made them righteous. But they were wrong. If they had truly examined themselves in light of God's law, they would have found that they were sinners. No one could keep the law. Those who are self-righteous do not see their need for a Savior. And Jesus understands this. And so he came and explicit states here that he came to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those who knew they were sinners. He could have asked everyone in those room, in that room. These are all tax leaders. These were all Jewish people of background, raised by their parents to observe the Jewish faith, but they had forsaken it for wealth and riches. And they were like Levi. Many of them in that room were miserable, and they felt the weight of sin. They wanted, they did not know how to get out. And they would have all acknowledged, I'm a sinner. They were ready to acknowledge that they were sick. Jesus came for such people. He came to cause such people to repent, to turn away from their sinful life. He came to call those who recognize that they fall short of God's holy law. They call, he came to call those who recognize that they stand condemned before God. Jesus calls them to repent, to turn away from sin and turn in faith to, in, in, turn in faith into God. And this is why. Jesus ate and drank with sinners so he could call them to salvation. Following Jesus' mission, brothers and sisters, means seeking sinners and not the righteous. And here, I believe, is a, is a provocative challenge for us. And here's a question you can ask yourself. Can anyone charge you today of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners? Do you spend any time with unbelievers? Tax collectors and sinners are not to be of people who are avoided. But they are to be people who are prioritized because they are lost without Christ. The sad reality is that for many of us, most Christians, after a number of years, we are so busy spending time with our fellow believers, and that's not bad. It's good to spend time with fellow believers, but we make so much time with them that we do not make time to spend with unbelievers. How can we reach the lost if we do not even spend time with the lost? You know, the majority of people come to Christ, and I'm sure even in this room, through relationships, right? Through people that we know. It was an invitation by a friend. Not an invitation by a stranger, right? Someone you trust. If we're going to be on mission with Jesus, we need to spend less time in here and a bit more purposeful time out there with the lost. That's the first controversy. 
a question about feasting. There's a second controversy that's raised when Jesus uh, brings uh, Levi to faith in, faith in him. And then it's a second controversy involves another question, a question of fasting. Fasting. We find this in verse 33 to 39 of this text. This takes place shortly after or perhaps even the very same day of, of the previous section. And another controversy arises. But instead of basically <laughs> what Jesus was doing, they were questioning what Jesus wasn't doing, that he was not fasting. And we see that uh, they raised the question, in verse, in verse the, really the question in verse 33, that is Jesus' disciples don't fast. His disciples don't fast. Verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. But yours eat and drink. Now, uh, they here is, uh, continues to be, uh, would, at least from here, seems to refer to the scribes and the Pharisees. From the parallel passage in Matthew, uh, we've learned that this uh, is actually asked by some of the disciples of John the Baptist. So it's likely that disciples of John the Baptist as well as maybe disciples of the Pharisees were all together in this and asking Jesus. And the question is, others, all the spiritual people fast, like the, John, the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees, but not the disciples of Jesus. Notice here that there's a slight criticism. Uh, you don't fast like these people do, but instead you, you eat and drink. That, that's a loaded phrase, right, in light of what we just read in the previous verses. You eat and drink with sinners. You're not doing spiritual deeds. You're not, you're not spending time in prayer. You're actually just carousing and socializing with sinners. What are you doing with them? However, was the fact that Jesus and his disciples not fasting, was that sin according to the law? The answer is no. The law of God, in fact, required only one fast of Israel, and that only happened once a year on the Day of Atonement of Yom Kippur, Leviticus 16, 29 through 34. However, fasting became a common practice in the land of Israel, and it wasn't wrong to fast, but it, and it was a oftentimes practiced as a reflection of sorrow and solemnness. But by Jesus' day, fasting had become basically a spiritual ritual, something that we practiced by those who considered themselves to be religious. It was to be a badge of, of spirituality and godliness. In fact, the more you fast, the more spiritual you were. The Pharisees, in fact, would fast, or most of themselves would fast twice a week. On Mondays and Thursdays. What's more, they would make sure that everyone knew they were fasting. They would put on a gloomy face. They would neglect their appearance. They might not comb their hair. Uh, they might uh, uh, make sure their clothes is disheveled so that everyone be, would notice, oh, that man, they're fasting right now. But Jesus spoke out against this kind of hypocritical fasting in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 16, 18. Now, fasting itself is not wrong, but this ritualistic observance of fasting, fasting as a badge of spirituality, 
was wrong and hypocritical, was condemned by Jesus. Now, the disciples of John the Baptist, they fasted too. And, did, and perhaps some of them also, in following the Pharisee, the ways of the Pharisees, might have also been guilty of hypocritical fasting. Some of them could have been genuinely fasting because John the Baptist was dead by this time. And maybe they, been, they might have been uh, fasting as a uh, sign of their sorrow. But the general practice of the, all the spiritual people in those days was that, was that they fasted regularly. And much like today, you know, who are the godly people in church? Oh, they're the people that read their Bible daily. They're the people who go to first service, and then they go to Sunday school. And then they serve during second service. Those are the spiritual people. It's what you do. Not to say those are not bad or bad things. But when you measure your spirituality by those things, Jesus condemns that. So while the spiritual people were fasting, they noticed that Jesus' disciples were not. And so Jesus answers about their question of the fast in verses 34 and 35. Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. Jesus takes a situation, an illustration from everyday life, a wedding. Everybody knows a wedding. Uh, Jesus, and through this illustration, answers the question. One of the most joyful occasions in their days, and to tell you the truth, it's one of the most joyful occasions in our days, is always a wedding. And if you go to a wedding, <laughs> I, I doubt anyone's gone to a wedding and said, and you see someone not eating and say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm here at the wedding, but I'm not, I'm fasting right now, right? Nobody does that. This is true then, true now, true then. When you go to a wedding, it's not for fasting, it's for feasting. It's not for sorrow, it's for joy. And Jesus takes this illustration, he says, the attendants of the bridegroom, that is, these are like the groomsmen. They were the ones who would stand closest to the bridegroom. They would make sure that everything in the, in the wedding took place. They would assist the groom. They would make the celebrate. They would be part of the celebration. You know, it's kind of like the groomsmen of today. You know, they sh- you know, when the party's not going really well, they just need to start dancing and singing. Okay, and then they, they gets the good party going. They, they are the ones who share, they would kind of start the joy. Jewish custom, in fact, even exempted them from uh, having to fast during a wedding. And weddings, both those days, took a whole week. That's, that's just good. That's just, we should do that. See, weddings were not times of joy and celebrate. It's a time of fasting. And it would be inappropriate to fast. And Jesus makes that point because Jesus identifies himself as the bridegroom. The reason why his disciples don't fast is because he is the bridegroom and they are with the bridegroom. And therefore, it's not time for fasting. It's a time for feasting. It's a time for joy. It would be completely inappropriate for the disciples to fast when the bridegroom, Jesus, is with them. His presence, his, the, the relationship with him is a reason to celebrate and rejoice. You know, just think about it. If Jesus showed up right here, how many of us would start fasting? You wouldn't because we would rejoice the, at his presence. What's more, for the disciples of John, they, would have rem- they should have remembered what John the Baptist had said. John the Baptist had said, actually, in John 3, 29 to 30, these words. And I, I wish I'd put it up on the, on the slide. I didn't have time. But he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. 
he must decrease, increase, but I must decrease. See, he says that when the, the friend of the bridegroom rejoices because of the bridegroom's voice. And then John says, and my joy has been made full because he recognizes that Jesus is the bridegroom. And he said this in front of his disciples, and they should have remembered that. Jesus' presence is a reason for rejoicing, not fasting. His statement in verse 35, uh, verse 35 in our text is, is, in fact, a veiled reference to his eventual death and crucifixion, crucifixion and death. When he is taken away, disciples will then have reason to fast. But as long as he is present, his disciples had reason to rejoice. Jesus, in answering in this way, was pointing out that the, the key to salvation the key to spirituality, the key to spiritual maturity is not found in merely following outward rituals like fasting. Salvation, that is the, in the forgiveness of sins and spiritual maturity is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, there are t still today people in our world who try to gain eternal life, try to gain a right standing with God, think they're good with God because of the rituals that they observe, because they do things but no amount of fasting, attending, giving, reading, and praying will gain you a right standing before God unless you have faith in Jesus Christ. Christ, Jesus Christ, is the bridegroom, and we are like the bride. And when we have Jesus, we have a reason to rejoice. That's why his disciples were not fasting. They were feasting. They were eating and drinking. They were here with him to not only celebrate with him, but to fulfill his mission. And in verses 36 through 39, we find that Jesus then kind of brings this whole question of the fast conclusion. And he simply, in this, we discover that Jesus is enough. He clarifies this controversy because the really controversy is because they were confused and they were thinking that they still needed their the Old Testament, Old Covenant, and the laws, the, the traditions that they had. When Jesus is simply say, coming, Jesus coming and his, his teaching would simply indicate that he brings the new covenant. He provides a, a new way to reach, to, to approach the Father, and Jesus' way, Jesus himself, is enough. Let's look at these verses. We'll read 36 to 39. And he was also telling them a parable. So he gave them an illustration. Now he tells them a parable. He actually tells them two parables. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one after drinking old wine wishes for new for he says the old is good enough. Here in verse 36 37, Jesus te teaches these two parables that teach basically the same principle that is, the, the old rabbinic traditions and even the old covenant law cannot be mixed with the new teachings, the new covenant of Jesus Christ. They cannot be mixed together. You cannot just add one to the other. And Jesus illustrates this from first using cloth. You can't use a new unshrunk cloth and to patch a hole in an old garment. Because when it's washed, that, then, that new uh, unshrunk cloth will shrink. And as it shrinks, it will pull away from the old garment and it will make the, the, the worse, a worse tear. 
Similarly, Jesus used this illustration from, uh, or this parable from the fermenting wine. Uh, and you can't put new fermenting wine into an old wineskin. It's basically you can't put new wine into an old wineskin. Why? Because as that new wine continues to ferment, it, it would span that brittle and cracking old wineskin, and that wineskin would then burst, and you would lose both the wineskin and the wine, and that would be a waste. But the attacks of the scribes were because they were holding on to their old wineskins. They were holding on to their old garments. But Jesus brings new wine. Jesus brings a new cloth. And he, they were trying, they said, well, your teachings don't mix with us. And they were, that's why they were having these conflicts with him. These questions about feasting, these questions about fasting. But Jesus would, is, indicates by these things that they don't match. They don't mix. You cannot mix the two. The old covenant is meant to be replaced by or fulfilled in this new covenant. Eventually to give way to this new covenant that he will provide and establish by his blood. Verse 39, there's Jesus' way. This is actually interesting. It's a unique only to Luke of all the, the parallel passages in Matthew and Mark. Compared, this is not there. But so it's kind of just a really neat that Luke brings this out. And it tells us that this is his emphasis. The reason why the scribes and Pharisees and others questioned Jesus about fasting is because they were content in their old traditions. They were content because they were like people who drank old wine. Once you have good old wine... And, you know, they said, well, I don't, I don't want new wine. The old wine's good. It's, it's good. It's already fermented. It's, it's, it's good, you know. And today, older wine is good. But not unless the new wine is Jesus. Jesus is new wine. He brings a new wine. He brings, and his, and they, they don't want it. They're just, they're comfortable with their old ways, their old traditions, their old observations, their old rituals not realizing that these traditions and these rituals had become unbiblical chains of ritualism and legalism leading to death. They did not understand that the old covenant laws were given not so they could say, oh, I keep them all, like the rich young ruler, but it was given to them so they would realize, no, we can't keep any of them. I'm guilty of them all. They were sinners. They were sick, and they were have a they were, and they could only be healed by the coming of the one who was promised, the Messiah, Jesus. The two would not mix. As long as they held to their traditions, they would never have forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the only way. He is enough. Jesus said in John fourteen six, "I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me." And even as we sung. Words reflecting Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And Peter says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Forgiveness is by faith alone in Christ alone. Jesus is enough. This is Jesus' point. And following Jesus' mission, brothers and sisters, means forsaking ritualism for our relationship with Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the application for us is, uh, is this question. How do you measure your standing before God? If I asked you, how's your walk with God? How would you answer? How would you evaluate? 
Would you begin by measuring it by saying, well, let me see, I, I read the Bible and this much this week, and I, I prayed this many times, and oh yeah, I've been going to church, and I regularly attend fellowship. Again, these, there's nothing wrong with these things. These are commendable things by the scripture even. They are good. But reading the Bible, praying, and attending church as an end in themselves are inadequate measures of your walk with God. Let's not make that mistake. Rather, these things are good and that they should lead you to know the one who matters, the one who's enough. They lead us to know Jesus. They need us to love him more because we know him more, because we appreciate him more, because we see his wisdom and his, his power and his majesty. When you read the Bible, when you pray, when you go to church, are they drawing you closer to Jesus Christ? That is the evaluation, the measure. Do you know him more today than you did yesterday because you attended church this morning? Are you more like him today than you were yesterday because you've read the scriptures and come to know more of who God is and who Jesus is? Is your faith in Christ stronger today than it was yesterday because you prayed in dependence upon him and looked to him? Because the closer you draw to Christ, the more you'll want to read his word and pray and gather with God's people at church so you can draw even closer to him. But the measure of our, the measure of our spirituality, the, even the, the measure by which you are saved, is whether you have Jesus and whether you know him more and you love Jesus. Because Jesus died for you. Well, these are the controversies that show us Jesus' mission. And let me just bring a conclusion to this end as we wrap up here. Oh, great timing. First of all, I've been addressing, I'm giving a lot of application to those of us who are believers, but I want to just address those, anybody here who's not yet a believer in Christ. You know, you read these passages, Jesus makes it real clear that if you want to be saved, you're not saved by your self-righteousness, you're not saved by observing outward rituals. And I'll make real clear that you are not saved by your self-righteousness, but you're saved by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross, came to die on the cross for our sins, so that everyone who calls upon him, everyone who believes upon him, we're going to have forgiveness of sins. Because our sins were placed upon Christ on the cross, and when you believe upon him, his righteousness is placed upon you. So when God looks upon you, he sees Christ's righteousness, and he, he declares you his, and, he, and, and you are adopted as his child into his family. But you are also not saved by rituals, but by a relationship with this Jesus, who is the Christ. It's by knowing him, putting your faith in him, and beginning a lifetime, like Levi, of following Jesus, learning his ways, striving to obey his ways, learning to pray, learning to read the scriptures, learning to have fellowship with the saints, and yes, learning to fulfill the mission of reaching out with the gospel, the lost in our world. But it's your saved by relationship with Christ. If you have not yet done so, I will invite you today to begin a relationship with Christ, to turn away from your sins, to repent and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. 
And lastly, uh, just a reminder, application for those of us who are believers. Following Jesus' mission means seeking sinners and not the righteous. Okay? Seeing sinners. And not that, of course, there's, there's no one who's righteous. Not one, right? So our, our priorities in this life ought to be looking for every opportunity to seek sinners. God brings, you know, you don't have to go and become a missionary to be seek sinners. Though it's, I appreciate the sisters going. God brings sinners all around our lives. We should see them all as our mission, as our field. People, people we work with, people we live with. Are we seeking them? Pursuing them because Jesus came for them. Will you go out on his behalf for them? And following Jesus' mission means forsaking ritualism for relationship. <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> as an older, established church, we are always ripe for ritualism and legalism, okay? So I keep preaching this because this is always our danger. Tell you the truth, it's my danger, okay? <laughs> if I was a little too strong in today's message because I feel convicted by it. We must watch out for ritualism, legalism, things measuring ourselves by these outward standards and forgetting that we are to measure ourselves by Christ. Because what we are going, we are being, we are becoming molded into the image of Christ. Turn away from the rituals and continue to always look to Christ. Look to our Savior. Look to Jesus who died for us. Build, this, build, build a relationship with him. Pursue him often. And as you do that, the mission of going forth to tell him that Jesus will just exude and out of your life because you already know him so well. You will be clearly that salt and that light that he's called us to be and that Jesus himself exemplified for you and me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for... Uh, <clears throat> Your word today, and thank you for the, uh, the, the gut check that it provides for us. Lord, may your word <clears throat> continue to mold and shape us as a church. Help us to be on mission. Help us to get out of our comfort zones, to live the kind of countercultural lives that you call us to live and that you exemplified yourself. Father, we pray that you would help us to, <clears throat> to avoid um, thinking, uh, thinking that we are self-righteous people. That we're righteous because we do these, the things that we do. That we're, Lord, that we remember that we're only righteous because of Christ. Now, Father, give us, help us, give us a heart and compassion to see the world for exactly what we once were desperately lost and sick, that we would seek out the world, share with them the gospel of the kingdom of God, a message that we heard and came to believe, and a message that the world needs to come to believe as well. Lord, may Christ be made manifest through our mission and our message. Father, bring many to yourself through the ministry of this church. And Lord, even now, if there's anyone here who is not yet a, savior, a Christian, not yet a believer, Father, help them to see their sin and their need for a Savior, that they would come to see that it's not, that they are saved not by doing any deeds, any works, any rituals, but simply by believing and receiving 
Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Lord, we pray that you would fulfill and answer these things in your power, your spirit, for your glory, because and in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the name above every name, in whom everyone is saved. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.